I don't know what is going on with Facebook. Go on. Okay. I don't like. Good, good, good evening. Welcome. Sunday, start of our week. Our California Haunts Radio Week. Looks like the internet's really busy tonight, too. You get internet notices right now. I think it's only me on, right? Anyway, welcome, everybody. And uh, give people a few minutes to come into the room because we're going. Um, hang on. Let me get this adjusted. We are starting this like a half hour later than we usually do because the past couple excuse my allergies. The past couple weeks, I've noticed that um, people are coming in like 6.30, 6.45, things like that. So I decided to go later. And I want to welcome everybody. This is the start of our new week because we're going to be going six days a week now with the show. So this starts our, our, our official six-day-a-week thing. We started that last week kind of with Nancy. And, uh, wow, it's exciting because for you guys that like, you know, like, like those live psychic readings, we're going to be doing that every other week. So that's kind of incentive to keep listening to the show. Uh, this week, uh, coming up on Friday, Nancy's going to be with us. We're going to be talking about past life, you know, like with little kids and stuff, because it's a cool topic, right? So we're going to be talking about that. And then the week after that will be a reading. Everybody will get readings, okay? The week after that, another topic, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what we're going to be doing. So you're going to see us advertising and stuff for that. But we are going six days, and we're going to go uh, Sunday through Friday with the show, which I'm excited about. You know, it's always good to expand. And, uh, yeah, and today we get to start a new book, too. Uh, Rebecca Pittman, the author, Rebecca F. Pittman, the author, has been on the show a couple of times with her books. In fact, we actually had her on about this book. So uh, I got permission from her to read her book, and I'm excited to start that. And then uh, following this, uh, Anna Maria Manalo's got her book that's coming out on the uh, Haunted Antiques. So we're going to be reading her one of her books again. So we're kind of rotating, you know. And I think it's kind of cool. It's kind of a thank you to the people that have been on that have authored books, you know, that, that have actually come on to the show to do this, to, you know, br bring their book to light. So we're going to be reading about Lizzie Borden today is what we're going to be reading about. Let's give it a couple more minutes for people to come in. And uh, hi, Marisa. How's it going? That's my producers in the, the producer in the house. So I better watch what I say. My name is... You know what I haven't done yet. My name is Charlotte. I'm your host. Welcome to California Haunts Radio Reading Sunday. I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of very hot, hot, hot. If if hell were on earth, Sacramento, California. So summer's coming. Another 90, not 91 degree day. Yikes. I came in here and turned the AC on for an hour before I came in and then turned it off. I'm trying to do these shows so that I don't have the AC blaring in the background. But it got hot today, let me tell you. Anyway, if you're watching from YouTube tonight, please subscribe. More subscribers, the merrier. YouTube shows us no love. We have see, we have good backdrops. We got all this stuff, good sound. Everything's everything's high tech here, except the phone system. But that's okay. We'll fix that later. But uh, you know, we just love you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you can do that. There's a little ghost down the. I think it's the lower right hand corner. For me, it might be your left-hand corner because I'm looking, you know, everything's flipped here. But it's a little ghost with a hat on, a Sherlock Holmes hat on, a magnifying glass. Click on that to subscribe because we're always looking for subscribers. And also, if you end up liking this show, please share it with your friends or relatives. You know, even if you didn't like the show, share it with people you hate. 
because we're looking to get get the word out and keep and keep things flowing with the show. Anyway, like I said, it, it, it's hot here. It's going to be cooler tomorrow. I want to get my yard done. I always do this really cool thing in my backyard, so I can't do that when it's so hot. You know, it's just it gets to be too much out there. So I'm going to be doing that probably tomorrow and Tuesday because those will be the cool days. Then it's going to jump to 95 on Wednesday. So summer is upon us here in lovely Sacramento. Another question is, anybody in the chat room ever use Nan or Nan for like pizza? Because that's what I'm trying to do now is make a um, vegetarian pizza for myself. Now I was going to use the Nan that I have. I've never used it before. So if anybody hears this and, they're in the, and they come in the chat room, let me know. Let me know how Nan works for pizza. <laughs> that was as human as anybody. But welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone that's not in the chat room and are listening live. I want to turn my 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 poor overworked tablet on. Ah, let me move my knee a little bit here. Okay, so we can get on with this book. And uh, from what the author tells me, it's a very where the heck did that come from? From what my author tells me, it's a very long book. So we're going to be here for for a while, I think. Reading this thing, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really into Lizzie Borden. I, I wish. I wish I had the means and time to pack my RV and take my dog and, and, and take my, my producer and I could pack the RV and take the dogs and, and go, you know, camp around that area in Massachusetts and check out the Lizzie Borden house. Maybe, maybe we'll get there. Who knows? But uh, that's always been a goal of mine to go there. And I would love to go to Gettysburg. And we're going to talk about our guest. In fact, I'm going to plug that right now. In case you guys disappear at the end of the show, tomorrow, speaking of traveling, tomorrow we've got a great guest on. And it's going to be a noon show because our guest is over in the UK. Barry Fitzgerald is going to be here tomorrow at noon. That's right. Let me, let me cue this up real quick. That's right. Ghost Hunters, Barry, Je Barry Fitzgerald. Ghost Hunters, International Ghost Hunters. Barry Fitzgerald is going to be on tomorrow. I'm excited, really stoked about it. So remember that, you know, we do our little intro thing at 12.55, or at 11.55, but he's going to be on at noon. So we're going to get to talk to, I'm going to do it again. Ghost Hunters, Barry Fitzgerald is going to be with us. All right, one more minute and off we go. Um, again, we're going to be reading, um, I don't know, <laughs> Lizzie, about Lizzie Borden today. I already turned to the prologue, so, you know. Uh, but I'm, I'm really excited. Again, we're going to be going to six days a week. Starting today. Constant six days a week. With Nancy Matz uh, bringing up our Fridays. Me starting with the book every week. Nancy Matz bringing up the rear on Fridays. So it's going to be exciting. Also, and I'll give you the link to our TikTok. Because, because we, California Haunts is on TikTok. And I was primarily using it for investigation stuff. And I might still use it for that. But I'm going to start putting um, radio teasers and stuff over at TikTok. So you guys can check that out. And that's going to start probably tonight or tomorrow. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's a big, big, big things are happening. Big things are happening. And if you're into buying paranormal equipment, check us out. Because starting probably next week, we're going to be filming. Because I'm going to do some demos on equipment. And, and it'll tell you guys just how good the equipment is. I've been doing this for a long time. So I know I know when equipment's good and when it's junk. Okay? 
I'll tell you the truth about it. I really will. All right. Next Saturday, too. Speaking of doing this for a long time, next Saturday is our Ghost Hunting 101 class. I hate pointing at people, but, you know, I like pointing. I like the teacher. Now class. Okay. But um, next Saturday is our Ghost Hunting 101 class. And uh, the class is pretty hardcore, but, I mean, it's aimed at both uh, the general ghost hunter and the person that's just going out for the weekend with their buddies. It'll help you be get better better evidence that you can show your friends and family. Okay, so if you're interested in that, visit the California Haunts Meetup page. And I'm even going to be adding it tonight or tomorrow to the what, the radio webpage at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. So you can check it out there as well. All right. I, you know, I own the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. We're based out of here. 45 people up and down the state of California. We're also in Nevada, Washington, Oregon, and Hawaii. So if you have a paranormal issue, get you know, shoot me a PM on Facebook or, or contact me on, off the radio page, and I'll get back to you because we have people everywhere, you know, that, that can go out, and we don't charge for it. That's the bright, That's the best part of it. We don't charge. Okay, well, without further ado, let's talk about this book. And uh, I got the prologue for you. It's written by Re uh, Rebecca F. Pittman. She's been on the show a couple of times. Really great author. In fact, she's the one that was talking about Pam Hupp, right? Pam Hupp was a miniseries. She wrote a book about Pam Hupp. And she's got another book about the ghosts of Versailles. Versailles, <laughs> the ghost of Versailles, and so I'm trying to uh, book her for that because I'd like to talk to her about that. But I think the first the first book we had around was about a a uh, TB asylum, I do believe, I could be wrong, or a mental asylum. But we also had around with this book. But um, but I think this will be a nice thank you to some of these authors that come on if we do their books. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into this. I know we're nine minutes in. I've been gabbing. Happens to the best of us. To gab. Prologue. The history and haunting of Lizzie Borden. And if I have to sneeze or something or sniffle, that's why my allergies are just... Uh, let me loosen this up before this thing. I have a table that has like a intendation in it, so if I don't do this just right, the whole mic will fall, and it wouldn't be the first time. Okay, again, the history and haunting of Lizzie Borden. Prologue. There, there may never be a final resolution of the Borden Hatchet murders of August 4th, 1892 in Fall River, Massachusetts. The tantalizing tri trail of clues and documentation is old 21st century. Armchair sleuths. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the, the tantalizing trial. <laughs> it's going to be one of those days. The tantalizing trail of clues and documentation is all 21st century armchair sleuths are left to forge through. Yet, the people who say there's nothing new to bring the light are incorrect. Actually, there is much. It is hiding between the lines of trial testimony in dusty newspapers and within, let me move over a little bit, and within the invaluable modern use of technology. The mind of a sociopath is fascinating, albeit a bit frightening, a mass of gray matter, I'm sorry. The mind of a sociopath is fascinating, albeit a frightening mass of gray matter. Stay with the program, Charlotte. They go through life with a sense of entitlement, seeing people as obstacles to their goals who must be manipulated or removed. Guilt and remorse, guilt and remorse are non-existent. It is a chilling thing to watch. 
I grew up next door to someone who had just that blend of personality traits, and I watched the trail of destruction left in her wake. That perspective of a borderline personality gave me a unique insight into the writing of this book. Those people do exist. Lizzie was human, flawed in many ways, as we all are. I believe losing her mother at such a young age began a fear of abandonment, which Emma, her older sister, tried desperately to eradicate. Andrew, her father, followed suit until Lizzie saw herself as entitled to a life okay. without obstacles. Was she spoiled? Yes. Was she fearful of loss? Yes. Did, did a hand in her face set off feelings of panic and depression? Yes. Would anything stop her from getting what she felt was her due? No. This book is written <coughs> from the facts borne out from, a police, from police interviews, inquest, preliminary hearing, and superior court testimonies, newspaper reports, and research. None of the relevant dialogue has been tampered with. I have, as a means of providing atmosphere, added some background and trivial dialogue based on the above-mentioned reports. Some of the people introduced here for the first time took a great deal of hunting down, but I think you will admit it was worth it. Some of what I'm about to show you is, a, is reasonable deduction if you look at the trial, or the trail of breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs and connect the dots. The book contains new evidence showing how the famous handless hatchet was broken, and in just a few seconds. The burned roll of paper found in the kitchen stove the morning of the murders will also be confirmed through photographs. The trials in this case are just as fascinating as the murders. The artful questioning put forth by the trial attorneys is sometimes masterful, other times patiently transparent or patently transparent, but always revealing. That many, that many witnesses were rehearsed, polished, and asked to lie is without a doubt. You learn as much from the missing words as you do from what made it onto the, onto the stenographer's pages. All grammatical and spelling errors found in the testimonies and dialogue of the evolved parties has been retained for accuracy. As a paranormal historian, I've researched and written about the most haunted historic places in America. Paranormal events happen every day. The final section of this book is dedicated to the haunting associated with the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum at 92 Second Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. Listed in the top 10 most haunted places in America, it would seem the, wall, it would seem the walls that witnessed the bloody tra tragedy of that sultry summer day do, at times, play back their memories. Read what the staff and guests report as ongoing paranormal events in this 124-year-old home. Here, then, is a tale stranger than fiction that spread beyond the gate at 92 2nd Street and up onto the hill where, where the Borden sisters locked their doors against whispers and gossip. The strange occurrences that surrounded Lizzie's life on French Street show an unsettled mind that became increasingly unhinged. This is a telling of one of America's biggest unsolved murder mysteries. It is the unauthorized diary of Lizzie Borden, a woman with her face pressed up against the window of a world she could not enter. Rebecca F. Pittman, November 2016. Section, The History. I don't know if you can see this. I'm going to try and show the photos, too, from the book, if I can. So let me get this up. You probably know it's not going to happen. Okay, I'll see what I can do, like, each week.
coming up is if there's significant photos with the chapter, I'll try and um, get them up for you guys so you can see them as I go along. Okay, so we're going to do it that way. I just didn't do it this time. Chapter one. All Hallows Eve, Maplecroft, Fall River, Massachusetts, October 20, October 31st, 1893. Come away from the window, Lizzie. The voice was tired, melancholy resolution, turning, turning it at once into a flat line of emotion. Emma Borden looked and felt much older than her 43 years. A gaunt woman with sad eyes, she had endured much in the past year and three months. She had returned home from a short-lived vacation with friends to find her father and stepmother butchered. Their autopsy bodies packed in ice and laid out on the family dining room table. Her coveted privacy was sacrificed to the glaring spotlight of thousands of strangers gathered outside the house and a score of policemen and newspapermen inside the house. Blood was splattered across the wallpaper and woodwork. There had been no time to grieve as she immediately took over the care of of a prostrated sister who could not face the milieu. I hope I said that right. Within moments of entering her home at 92 Second Street, Emma was immediately interviewed by the police. Her private things searched through, and the mantle of responsibility etched firmly upon her furrowed brow. The tears flowed only when she was finally closeted alone in her room at night, and, the, and in the morning, she wiped her father's blood from the parlor door. Lizzie, come away from the window, Emma urged more emphatically. She glanced past her younger sister's hand, holding aside the lace curtain of the south-facing sitting room window on the second floor of their new home on French Street. Outside, the gaslighted street lamps punched ragged holes in the darkness, their soft halos of light eliminating the small shapes darting about the neighborhood trees. Candlelight flickered through the carved eyes and mouths of macabre pumpkins and gourds peering through the window glass of the mansions lining the street. It was All Hallows' Eve in Fall River, Massachusetts, and the moneyed gentry of the hill was enjoying the merriment. Lizzie Borden ignored her sister's admonition. She stood transfixed at the window, eyes focused on the three-storied house catty corner from theirs. Carriages were arriving in front of the Braytons' home, their lanterns adding to the party atmosphere as revelers in fancy dress spilled from their open doors. Their laughter carried on the night air, tightening the knot and tightening the knot in the warrior's stomach, until the familiar feeling of panic pulsed in Lizzie's head. Several of the party goers turned to stare at the house across the street, its turret, topped with conical witch's hat, seemingly ironically suitable to its inmate. That's Lizzie Borden's house, they said in excited whispers, and then, seeing the silhouette at the upper window, turned and hurried up the sidewalk of the party. Emma pulled her from the window, a familiar feeling of dread sweeping over her. They had only been living at 7 French Street for a little under two months. She had hoped the new furnishings and prestigious address would give her sister the peace that had eluded her at their father's home on 2nd Street. Yet Lizzie had continued to complain as she watched the neighbors, as she watched neighbor after neighbor pass their front door without stopping to welcome the sisters to their private enclave. There were no calling cards left on the silver tray waiting expectantly by the front door, nor flowers, pastries, or invitations. Though the neighbors peered at the garbled, I'm sorry, though the neighbors peered at the gable structure from beneath parasols and whispered to each other from 
behind gloved hands, they passed him by. The arrival of bands of curious onlookers began occurring from the moment the newspapers announced the Borden sisters' purchase of the home on the hill. Fall River's most elite setting and the and the addresses of the who's who of that New England hamlet. It sat looking down, both geographically and figuratively, on a city built upon the backs of cotton mill workers. People walked by, drove by, even stood unabashedly pointing at the Borden sisters' new house with very looks of awe, bewilderment, and fear. Only a few days earlier, two families had moved into the newly remodeled Andrew J. Borden home at 92 2nd Street, where the double murders had taken place. Lizzie and Emma had seen the altercations. Oh, I'm sorry, the alterations. The fireplace in Lizzie's bedroom was, at some point, walled over. Perhaps Lizzie had seen to it. Lewis Hall, the owner of the livery stable across the street from the Borden house, and William B. Peck, Peckham, a grocer, his wife and three daughters, unpacked their boxes, moved in the, into the new two into the two newly created living spaces and became Lizzie and Emma's first tenants. For both men, it was, pre- it was a pragmatic move, placing them within walking distance of their businesses. Whether they grew accustomed to the ongoing spectators gawking at the infamous murder house is unknown. Both men had witnessed the harrowing events played out there on August 4, 1892. Did they walk with trepidation through the hallways and double-check all the locks? Did innocent shadows caught from the corner of their eyes cause their nerves to twitch? To add to the circus-like atmosphere that had ridden into the hill, along with the Borden sisters' moving carts, came hacks-carrying drummers from out of town. For a few coins extra, the traveling salesman could pay pay a rented carriage driver to carry them by the house on French Street and hear a penny dreadful retelling of the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Yes, sir, gents. There she sits, Lizzie Borden. She was acquitted of the crimes, but there are tongues still wagging some, somewhat knows. That says maybe someone got away with murder. The eyes would then dutifully follow the outline of windows, hoping for a glimpse of the infamous woman about whom they had read so much. After a few minutes of hedonism, the driver would continue. Next up, over on High Street, we'll see the home of Alfred D. Butterworth. Mr. Butterworth hung himself from a tree in a field only four months before the Borden murders, leaving behind a wife and family. Maybe money. Don't buy happiness, gents. The newspaper headlines and dubious celebrity of their newest neighborhood brought the Borden sisters a few fans from the addresses surrounding them. The increased traffic, both by foot and buggy, was an unwelcome invasion among the manicured lawns and pristine Victorian homes. The sound of thuds against the siding of the house suddenly sounded from below. Emma and Lizzie hastened to windows, one overlooking the east side of the house, the other looking to the front. Lizzie saw the small figures of several children darting across the street from her side yard. They were dressed in makeshift costumes, most appearing to be oversized cast-offs from their parents' closets. Long flapping coats, Long, long, flapping coat sleeves and trailing dresses flitted about in the October night. Annie E. Smith, the Borden sister's 29-year-old maid, appeared at the entrance to the upstairs sitting room. Miss Borden, she said, directing her statement to Emma, there is boys and girls outside pelting the house with eggs. Do you want me to tell Joseph to run them off? Joseph H. Turalt was the sister's coachman 
who lived on the property. He was 37 years old, four years Lucy Sr., and hailed from Rhode Island. Just then, the stinging sound of thrown sand skittered across the glass window panes. Something hit the roof and rolled down. Shrieks could be heard coming from the small shadows, racing to the safety of towering elms and maple trees skirting the Bourne's property. The maid looked at Lizzie with panicked eyes, the infamy of her mistress perhaps becoming clearer with each assault. The shrill sound of the doorbell spilt a short-lived respite, respite of silence. It twilled on without cessation. They put a pin in the doorbell, miss, Annie said, wringing her hands. Her breathing was, was coming in short pants. It's a mischief thing they do. They hope you will open the door and then they throws flour in your face. It's just a children's prank, she said, more to convince herself of the harmlessness of the onslaught than to offer solace to the sisters who were both showing strain. Emma left the room, her shoulders bowed beneath the weight of the past two years. Lizzie heard her steps on the stairs leading down the front hall. Moments later, the incessant shrill stopped, leaving their ears ringing. Annie and Lizzie waited in the stillness and listened. Moonlight shone through the lace curtains, throwing fluttering ghost-like images across the polished wood floor. Seconds later, she heard it, rising in the still air from the stand of bushes beneath the windows. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother forty plaques. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Her throat constricting, Lizzie turned to the window nearest where she heard the voices. Three small girls and a young boy streaked up French Street and careened around the corner of Belmont, disappearing into the darkness. She stood there, the sounds of music and laughter spilling from the open windows of the Brayton house, where the old Hollow's Eve party was in full swing. Her head filled with a thrumming noise, like the sound of water rushing through her ears. The panic started in her stomach and reached up to her heart in a vice-like grip as her breathing became labored. She gripped the lace curtain, nearly pulling it from the wrought iron rod. Miss Borden? Annie asked in a frightened voice as she watched the metamorphosis before her. Her mistress's cheeks were effused with a red tinge and her lips had gone white. Old Lizzie heard were the words ringing in her ears. Lizzie Borden took an axe. Chapter 2 For Lizzie Andrew Borden, the world was an uncertain place one fraught with rules and boundaries over which she had no control. This realization that life would always have a hand before her face, blocking her way to things which, which she felt entitled to, began at, at the vulnerable age of two. 12 Ferry Street was a crowded home in 1853. Generations of families would often reside under one roof. Andrew J. Borden carried his new bride, Sarah A. Morse, over the threshold after their 1845 Christmas Eve wedding at the Central Congregational Church. For Sarah, a life that began beneath the ethereal glow of Christmas bells must have seemed magical. Her young husband was establishing himself in the, in the cabinet-making business, and she did work as a seamstress. As Andrew's fortunes grew, along with his real estate holdings, his family followed suit. On March 1, 1851, his first daughter, Emma Lenora Borden was born. Andrew's small family now resided elbow to elbow with Andrew's father, Abraham, his wife, Phoebe, their youngest daughter, Phoebe Ann, and their older daughter, Luriana, along with her husband, Hiram Harrington. Emma, at the impressionable age of four, witnessed her first, but certainly not her last, family funeral. 
Andrew's sister, Phoebe Ann, died within the walls of 12 Ferry Street at the age of 27 in August 1855. Andrew's sister, Loriana, and her husband, Hiram, moved across the street to 13 Ferry Street about the same time. For young Emma, it must have felt like a frightening change in the household to lose two aunts at once. Albeit, one was only a few yards away. The sadness of Phoebe's passing was quickly replaced by the joy of a new addition to, to Andrew and Sarah's family. On May 3rd, 1856, daughter Alice Esther was born. Five-year-old Emma looked into the bassinet with mixed emotions at this new arrival, who wrapped her small hand around her older sister's finger. Emma had been an only child for five years, a position some adolescents find hard to forego. She may have been filled with joy, however, at the prospect of having this little new playmate. Whatever Emma felt was short-lived. At just under two years of age, young Alice died of hydro- I'm going to try this hydrocephalus acutus, dropsy on the brain. For the second time in only three years, the funeral wreath was hung at the door, the mirrors draped in black, and the sound of sobbing echoed throughout the small house. On July 19, 1860, Andrew's third and last daughter was born. He gave the baby his name, perhaps realizing a boy was not in the making. Thus, Lizzie Andrew Borden made her triumphant entry into the world and changed the course of history. For the next three years, life in the congested little house on Ferry Street saw several changes. Phoebe Davenport Courier moved in, a relative of Andrew's through his mother's Davenport side. Perhaps a crying baby was not Phoebe's thing, as she departed soon after Lizzie's birth. There were also rumors at this time that Sarah Borden, Andrew's wife, was suffering from severe headaches and bouts of behavior causing acquaintances to label her as peculiar. In photographs of Sarah, we see an intense woman with an almost wild-eyed fierceness. Her brother, John Vindicum Morse, has the same penetrating stare in photographs taken of him. Whatever played Sarah is uncertain. Tragically, in March 1863, she died at age 39 after succumbing to uterine congestion and disease of the spine. Lizzie was only two, Emma was 12, and Andrew a widower at 40. In early images of Andrew, you see a man with a grim set mouth, his visage showing a determination to overcome his father's fall from the board and fortune. With unrelenting guile and business acumen, he set about to create his fortune, beginning with joining William M. Almy in an enterprise that would set the men up for the rest of their lives. Together, they purchased the property at South Main and Anawan Streets and opened a furniture business, which later included undertaking services and coffin building. Borden and Almy opened in March 1845. The bond between the two men was ironclad. William gave his daughter Rachel Andrew's name. Rachel Borden Almy and I think it's Almy around. I'm going to say Almy. And Lizzie Andrew Borden were classmates and friends. The Almy Borden brand followed the two men to their graves. Their family plots at Oak Grove Cemetery are side by side. Emma would say in later years that she had stood by her mother's deathbed and acquiesced to one, pro to one promise her mother asked of her, to always watch over baby Lizzie. This was a promise Emma Borden fulfilled beyond all human endurance until the day she was lowered into her grave. Now we're going to talk about Emma. 
By the time adolescence merged into teen years, Emma Lenore Borden had seen much sadness. A weight of responsibility had been placed with unrelenting heaviness upon her young shoulders. She may have taken over much of the care of baby Lizzie well before her mother's death, as any spinal disease probably made lifting a baby impossible. While the 1860 federal census shows a servant by the name of Caroline T. Gray residing at the ferry house, it would seem she had her hands full caring for such a large household. It is doubtful the care and rearing of children were included in her made-of-all-work description. Emma's education was unremarkable. There are no records touting her grades or extracurricular interests. As she was shy, as she was a shy and retiring adult, it may be assumed she was of the same makeup at an early age, choosing the back row in school as opposed to the front, dutiful in her studies, but praying not to be called to the chalkboard in front of the eyes of the watchful peers. Lizzie was nine years Emma's junior. She may have followed closely in her big sister's shadow within the close walls of Ferry Street, but their personalities could not have been more different. Yet, Lizzie stated during her inquest testimony that Emma had been more like mother, like a mother to her as she grew. I always went to her because she was older and had to, and had to carry me after our mother died. Another mother wished to shortly enter Emma and Lizzie's life. Andrew married again when Lizzie was five and Emma 14. Abby Durfee Gray was 37 when she became the second Mrs. Borden. For Abby, a spinster by the era's reckoning, she may have given up hope of finding love. For Andrew, a widower with two young daughters and an empire to build, a wife to oversee things, and be a female influence for a daughter entering her teenage years, was pragmatic. There may have been romantic feelings between the couple, although a child from the Union was never forthcoming. It was soon after, in April 1867, that Emma, at the age of 16, was sent away to Norton, Massachusetts, to the Wheaton Female Seminary for a year and a half. The four terms for which she stayed came at the cost of 382.25. The rumors that Andrew Borden was miserly with his daughters is not borne out, as here he spends what was not a nominal amount in that era to ensure his oldest daughter's education. For the two sisters, this period of Emma's only absence from Lizzie's life since her birth must have had a traumatic effect on both of them. Emma's role as a little mother and housekeeper was suddenly usurped, or usurped, I'm sorry, by a strange woman who lacked her mother's fire and intensity. Fiery as a Borden was a phrase used often in Fall River, and it was usually well-founded. Now, Emma was away from home for the first time with only a few Fall, fall Riverites, including a friend, Maddie, Brigham as familiar faces. Did she feel kicked out once Abby arrived? Was this the beginning of her hatred for her new stepmother? Now we look at Lizzie. Lizzie was also beginning a new education, as, as at the age of five, she began elementary school. She was still living at home, doubtless lonely for Emma, and trying to adapt to this new female presence in her house, who suddenly was calling the shots, albeit in an ineffectual, mild way. Lizzie called her mother, perhaps at her father's urging. It was all so different. Life held no consistency for her, no safety net. She could be batted about like a badminton at everyone's will but her own. The uncertainty of who would be in her life and who would disappear just as suddenly was frightening. Losing your mother at such a young age 
had brought about a fear of abandonment. In later years, this fear would resurface when people ignored her or she felt control over her life slipping away. At times, it became an all-encompassing panic. At other times, it exploded into rage. Lizzie began her freshman year at the Fall River High School in September 1875. The school was located on the hill and was perhaps Lizzie's introduction to the address that would become her obsession throughout the rest of her life. The city's wealthy, wealthy sons and daughters graced the halls of this former mansion. It was her first real taste of class segregation and the burning need to fit in. According to the Boston Herald on August 7, 1892, Lizzie, as a scholar, was not remarkable for brilliancy, but she was conscientious in her studies and, with application, always held a good rank in her class. Later in life, Lizzie was often described as a brilliant conversationalist, mostly due to her voracious reading. According to acquaintances, Lizzie was quite sensitive and reticent when it came to making new acquaintances. Her reserve, her nemesis during the 1892-1893 double murder trials of her father and stepmother, seems to have been in place at an early age. Friends later remarked it had always been her matter. Other girls giggled and flirted. Lizzie tended to hang back and watch through distressful eyes. A pattern began in young Lizzie's life that would follow her into adult years. Her desire to be seen as worthy and perfect are evident in her routine of quitting things in which she did not excel. She did not finish high school, perhaps feeling the pain of falling short of excellent grades, or from watching from the sidelines as other girls were invited to dances, picnics, and house parties from which she was excluded. Invitation after inv invitation to parties on the hill would find their way into her classmates' mailboxes, but not hers. Her testimony at her inquest concerning her father's final minutes with her is prophetic. She stated she found him in the sitting room after his return from the post office. When she asked, is there any mail, she claims he answered, none for you. Lizzie also quit other things in life if they became too difficult, or if she felt she had fallen short. It was rumored she once, while teaching Sunday school to some Chinese children, became distraught when they would not mind her and walked out, never to return to teaching. She would hold organization posts for only a short time, once again quitting if she felt she was underappreciated or if it did not fulfill her need for social advancement. Lizzie was not without friends. Some of the acquaintances she made in high school stayed with her for many years. Two bequests in Lizzie's will went to Adelaide B. Whip, Addie, and to Lucy S. McCumber, Lou showing her lasting friendship with these young classmates. Other friends came from school, I'm sorry, other, other, other friends came from church associations, daughters of her father's business acquaintances, and relatives. Adeline Maria, Alan, Addie, was a classmate friend of Lizzie's and later became her neighbor on the hill. Addie, on June 2, 1881, married in what was called a brilliant wedding and quickly acclimated to the status of a Fall River Club woman and member of numerous social welfare organizations. She moved into a newly constructed Queen Anne-style home on Rock Street in 1892, the year of the murders. Later in life, Lizzie became friends with Addie's daughter, Edith, who was quoted as saying, there were rumors that Lizzie stole some things from local stores when she really didn't need to. I don't know whether Lizzie was guilty or not. She had a very good and influential lawyer who was able to keep information out. 
the rumor of the rumors of Lily of uh, Lizzie stealing would follow her from Second Street up onto the hill in later life. Louise Holmes Stillwell, Lully, maintained her friendship with, Lily, with Lizzie for many years. Her uncle was Charles Jarvis Holmes, a friend of Andrew Borden's, and one who would stand by Lizzie's side throughout her long legal battles. His wife, Mary, would spend considerable time at the Borden house after the murders supporting Lizzie and Emma, and even overseeing the police searches in the home. Their daughters, Mary Louisa and Anna Covell Holmes, were Lily's cousins and part of the group of girls who were to vacation with Lizzie and Marion during the time of the murders. Lily kept a prolific diary during her high school years where boys dating and other teenage raptures are reported. As she describes who is flirting with whom, Lizzie's name never appears. She is conspicuously absent, conspicuously absent from the names mentioned attending parties, weddings, and outings. Lizzie was to witness another grand wedding when the same Lily married John Hiram Condick, Nevius of New York, in another of the elaborate receptions that made Fall River newspapers social column headlines. Lizzie presented her with a set of Delft-like, Delft-like sweet meat dishes, which are on display today at the Fall River Historical Society in the Lizzie Borden Museum section. Lizzie attempted to learn how to play the piano during her high school days. With her usual doggedness and focus, she attacked the keys, determined to become an aficionado of the ivories. This did not last long. She quit when it became apparent she would not achieve the perfection for which she aspired. Excuse me. It may have required more dedication to practice than she was ready to sacrifice. Her friend's diaries during this time were filled with entries of parties, splendid slang, tennis matches, seaside adventures, and travel, and travel. Lizzie escaped into a world of words. It was said she brought books, not by the volume, but by the armful. Friends visited Lizzie at her home at 92 Second Street, but the feeling is not one associated with frivolity or fun. Lily's diary, reporting on her few trips to see Lizzie during their high school days, stated that Lizzie was rather tired, rather blue, and real miserable. These statements were made during different visits and within one month of Lizzie's 16th birthday, a time when most girls are planning a party and looking at boys with new interests. Ooh, it's hot in here. Three of Lizzie's closest friends had been neighbors during her young days on Ferry Street. Elizabeth Murray Johnson, who was to receive a cryptic letter from Lizzie on the day of the murders, as sisters Mary Ella and Anne Annie Eliza Sheen, who would marry well and become Fall River socialites, as respectively as Mrs. George S. Brigham and Mrs. William Lindsay Jr. Annie remained Lizzie's friend for the rest of her life, her correspondence with Lizzie giving much insight into a troubled mind. Annie rose high, Annie rose high in her social circles, the pinnacle of which was her presentation to the Queen of England. That Lizzie watched her friends marry decorate lavish mansions and summer homes, travel in elite circles, and become mothers, must have colored her view of the world as she saw it from the lace curtains of her bedroom amidst the businesses and noises of Second Street. These girls had lived in the same working-class neighborhood as she, yet they were living her dream. Her father's money was name-carried with it, and name-carried with it, a clout that should have unlocked doors for her, but they remained as barred as the triple locks on the Borden's front room or front door. 
Her location in Second Street's business district was a deterrent to the, to the young bows of social breeding, who may have sought her. She may have been oblivious that her black spells, sullenness, I'm sorry, obvious, obvi, no oblivious, that her black spells, sullenness, and frequent outbursts of anger were also walls to her popularity. Lizzie entered her adult life with one unrelenting aspiration, to belong to the elite set of young women who belonged on the hill. She was, after all, a Borden. Her ancestors had played a part in the town's prosperity. Her father was one of the wealthiest men in Fall River, with a giant building named after him that took up half the city block. Her Borden cousins lived on the hill. She was doing volunteer work through the Central Congregational Church, rubbing elbows with the city's wealthiest matrons, joining each committee, such as the Fruit and Flower Mission, the Christian Young Women's Temperance Movement, and the others, all in an effort to be noticed and welcomed into that coveted inner circle. Lizzie's church work finally bore fruit on June 20th, 21st, 1890, excuse me, when she was included along with two older board ladies to join some of the other church volunteers for a grand tour of Europe. That the other Borden girls lived on the hill along with other money passengers would have caused Lizzie a dizzying feeling of finally having arrived. Her traveling companions, Anna H. and Carrie L. Borden, were granddaughters of Colonel Richard Borden, and hence part of the elite branch of the Borden family tree. A Cunard line steamer, Sissia, the same steamship line that owned the Titanic, sailed from Liverpool, England in June of 1890, one month before Lizzie's 30th birthday. For the next 18 weeks, Lizzie toured the elegant cities of Europe and witnessed firsthand how the other half lived. The more prominent Mrs. Borden's took to the street of Paris and Rome as young ladies, to the manner born. Lizzie washed as trunks and hat boxes were filled with the latest designs by Worth and other maestros of fashion. She navigated through the confusing array of silverware surrounding the fine china plates at the fashionable restaurants they frequented. By watching the other ladies, this is where she belonged. This was her birthright. From the Blarney Castle in Ireland to Loch Lomond in Scotland, from Shakespeare's Stratford-upon-Avon to Canterbury Castle in Kent, Amsterdam to Heidelberg, the Alps to Florence, Milan to, Ven to Venice, Par Paris to the Tower of London, Lizzie collected postcards of her favorite sites and purchased a few fashions from, from the Belle Epoque that she could afford. Each city unfolded its culture before her thirsty eyes. The museums and galleries were no longer just on the pages of her books at home, but here, where her eager fingers could touch them. At times, it must have seemed surreal to walk the crowded European streets where the fashions and languages wrapped around her mind like gossamer. The return voyage in October of 1890 shows a Lizzie coming down from a high. The tour is over, and perhaps she felt during the trip that the other girls, though polite, were not as ingratiating toward her as she had hoped. Perhaps it was her imagination. The sinking feeling at the thought of the bleak house waiting for her was not imagined. It was all too real. Anna Borden shared a cabin with Lizzie during the sea voyage. During Anna's testimony at the murder trial, she was asked, You are, I believe, not a relative of the prisoner? No, sir, Anna replied. The indelible stamp 
of Hierarchy family planted. Lizzie and Anna shared a great-great-grandfather, making them third cousins. Anna went on to say she had known Lizzie about five years, a time that coincided with Lizzie's confirmation into the Central Congregational Church. It was indeed through Lizzie's Christian endeavors she had wrangled a grand tour ticket. And a stab at entering the circle widens on the hill. Anna was asked to testify to a conversation she and Lizzie had in their cabin on the, on the voyage home. She related that Lizzie said she regretted the necessity of returning home after she had such a happy summer because the home that she was about to return to was such an unhappy home. To belong to the Fall River Inner Circle upon her return was perhaps the wish Lizzie made at the famed Trivia Fountain in Rome. Trivia Fountain in Rome. As she stood with her back, the 85-foot high sculpture held her breath and tossed a coin over her shoulder into the water. That wish would never be realized. On November 18, 1890, members of the Central Congregational Church threw a large welcome home party for the Fall River Girls, who had just returned from the Grand Tour. Seventy guests were waiting by the were, were waited on by by the young men of the church, and the returning travelers were spoiled beyond their dreams. Anna Borden stood and regaled the crowd with a few stories of their travels and thanked the committee warmly for the wonderful party. As the orchestra played, the guests departed. President Booth asked permission and receiving it, escorted the two Mrs. Mrs. Borden's home, while the young man named Fred Pierce escorted Lizzie to her address because it was the polite thing to do. If Lizzie had hoped to be part of the social in-crowd that traveled the summer, that summer to Europe would assure her place within carefully sewn folds of the Fall River nobility. She was to be let down and let down with a crash. Upon returning home, to the austere house in the midst of businesses, stables, and a few scattered houses, she waited for party invitations from the girls on the cruise, but none appeared. Though she had been the secretary for the fruit and flower mission before the trip, she did not return to that post upon her return. A letter was written by Mrs. William C. Deval, Jr. on April 25, 1890, to her daughter two months before the trip, listing the girls who were included in the Grand Tour party summed up Lizzie's place in society. This woman, who knew everyone who was anyone in Fall River, wrote Nellie Chauve, Elizabeth A. Borden, I do not know who she is. Anna H. Borden and Carrie Caroline L. Borden are going to Europe with Miss Hannah D. Mowry this summer. I do not know who she is. The hatred towards Abby Borden had been growing since Lizzie's return from the Grand Tour. Emma saw the difference in her younger sister within a few short days after Lizzie unpacked her trunks and came down from the exhilaration of telling her travel stories and showing off her postcards and souvenirs. She spent hours pasting each picture postcard of the many wonders she'd seen into an album, carefully writing beneath each card her memories of that location. After seeing her steamer truck, trunk resting in the hallway, Andrew, it was said, bounded up the steps to greet his daughter the morning following her return. That he loved his daughter was evident to many, if not to them. It was said one friend it was said one friend looked at Andrew's smiling face as he went about his daily routine and commented, I can guess by that huge smile that someone is back. But the afterglow from the dizzying whirlwind of travel to so many cultural places soon faded. Lizzie was unhappier than ever. 
She complained constantly about her cramped little room and the ugly house she, she had come home to. There wasn't even room to display the many wonderful treasures she had carefully selected from each European city. Emma did what she always did. She took a back seat to baby Lizzie's wishes, and in an effort to head off a, a, a maelstrom, offered to change bedrooms with her, as Emma's was twice as large. While the new sleeping arrangement may have mollified Lizzie for a time, it quickly wore off. It is unknown at what point Lizzie learned of the plan to turn the upper farm at Swansea into a major business operation. Andrew owned two farms in Swansea, Massachusetts. The upper and lower farms, the upper and lower farms. He had accumulated the property through acquisitions over the years and stubbornly held on to the water rights of that area. The upper farm was a huge acreage for cattle and other livestock and crops. The lower farm was where the family summered and where Lizzie had learned to fish. Both farms were only minutes from the war, from Warren, Rhode Island, and the home of Uncle Charles and Morris. It is possible Andrew went to visit his brother, I'm sorry, went to visit his brother-in-law, John Morris, in Hastings, Iowa, while Lizzie was away for 18 weeks on the grand tour. Plans for a new business concerning the upper farm, the upper farm, may have begun at that time. John did testify in 1893 that Andrew came to see him for some years earlier. John Vinicum Morris was the brother of Andrew's first wife, Sarah, who died when Lizzie was only two. He was a bachelor who had been born and raised in Fall River, but had headed west to the frontier to try his hand at farming and horses. Using his Yankee thrift and a good business head, he soon amassed a sizable bankroll. John visited the Bordens often, staying a year and a half in 1879. He tended to bounce around from relative to relative when traveling. Andrew found, him a, found in him a friend and shrewd business confidant. Both men were loners, seldom letting others close, close until their motives and loyalty had been proven. They pinched pennies, distanced themselves from frivolous adornment, and saw real estate holdings and, ex and expansive businesses as a golden goose. John rented his Iowa farm and moved to Warren, a mere eight miles from Swansea. In 1890. The same year, Lizzie was traveling. He stayed with his uncle Charles Morse, his wife Mary, and their two spinster daughters, Elizabeth, 52, and Henrietta, 47. Both Charles and Mary were getting on in years. In 1890, Charles was 80 and Mary was 78. A year later, John rented his Iowa farm for an additional year and moved to South Dartmouth. Dartmouth, Dartmouth, Massachusetts, to join his friend William A. Davis, who was operating a horse trading and butcher business. The 1880 federal census shows William A. Davis, 28, and his wife Sophia S. Wilcox Davis, 26, Isaac C. Davis, 2, and Alice P. Davis, 5. Sophia's father is also living with them by 1892. William is listed as a meat peddler. John told friends around this time that he had bought 80 Mustang horses that he had brought 80 Mustang horses with him from Iowa. For a time they were pastured at Westport, Massachusetts, where some itinerant horse traders had set up camp. The local authorities began investigating the setup two days before the Borden murders. John suddenly moved the horses to Fairhaven, Massachusetts, possibly to his relative's farm there. In Fairhaven, 
in Fairhaven lived another Charles Morris, Charles L. Morris, who was married to Marinda Mary C. Morris, a second cousin. They had three young children, Betsy 12, Charles M. Morris 4, and Emma L. Morris 2. Yet another Mary Morris, Mary L. Morris, who was widowed after her husband Joseph died, was cited as living in Fall River in the 1900 federal census at the age of 76. This is the Aunt Morris Emma mentions during the trial. The tradition of naming generations of the same name has caused more than one genealogist to reach for the aspirin bottle. The storm within the walls of 92 2nd Street had truly begun in 1887 when Andrew stepped in to help Abby's relative. Sarah Gray Whitehead was Abby, Abby Dufree Gray Borden's half-sister and a good 32 years younger. When Sarah and Abby's father, Oliver Gray, died, the 4th Street house where Sarah was living was divided four ways, one-fourth to Mrs. Gray, the widow, one-fourth to Mrs. Priscilla Fish, Gray's daughter, one-fourth to Sarah Gray Whitehead, and one-fourth to Abby. Abby gave her one-fourth to her sister Sarah. At Abby's urging in 1887, five years before the murders, Andrew bought the widow Gray's share and gave it to Sarah. Sarah was struggling, and her husband wasn't doing right by her, according to Abby. This generous gift would give her beloved half-sister security and a home of her own. For Andrew J. Borden, this strange largesse made his two daughters sit up and take notice. Lizzie, never one to sit quietly by, confronted him. Her inquest testimony summed it up when, Aunt, when attorney Hosea Knowlton asked her about her response to the gift. We thought what he did for her, Abby, he should do for his own, as he said hauntingly. And indeed, the sisters were given their grandfather their grandfather's house on Ferry Street, where they had been born. It was worth a good deal more money than the 4th Street house. They owned it outright, but soon found that, that the rent payments they received from tenants there were minimal, and the house was in constant need of repairs. On July 18, 1892, only two weeks before the murders, they suddenly sold the deed for the house back to their father for $5,000, for $5, 2000 more than what it was valued when he gave it to them. That the sisters opted for cash so soon before his death gives one pause. Did one or both fear that should their father die, they, they would be stuck with a house that was proving to be a money pit and prefer ready cash instead? Would extra money in their banks prove that there was no motive on their behalf to kill their wealthy father? One of the many people allowed to view the dead bodies of Andrew and Abby Borden on the day of their murders was George Petty of number. 98 2nd Street. He had lived at 92 before the Bordens moved in, 20 years prior to their death. He was interviewed by Officer Philip Harrington concerning what he saw the day of the murders. Went upstairs, got down on my knees to examine Mrs. Borden's head. At once I saw she had been dead some time, and told the doctor that she must have been dead an hour. I further said that this is where the trouble began. This is the starting point. No truer words were spoken concerning the mysterious circumstances of that day. Abby was indeed where the trouble began. On June 24, 1891, two important events happened. John Morse was moving to South Dartmouth to, to join the William A. Davis family's meat, meat business, 
and the Borden's house was robbed. It was a unique burglary happening in broad daylight on one of the busiest business streets in the city. It happened while Andrew and Abby were summering at the Swansea farm. Captain Dennis Desmond, Jr. of the Fall River Police Department, responded to a summons made by Andrew Borden. Upon Desmond's arrival, he said, in a small room on the north side of the house, I found Mr. Borden's, de Mr. Borden's desk. It had been broken open. Andrew told Desmond $80, $80 in money and $25 to $30 in gold and a large number of horse car tickets had been taken. The tickets bore the name of Frank W. Brightman. They were a gift to Andrew from a business associate. Due to the name written on them, the tickets were seen as a way to apprehend the burglar if and when they were used. An idea, an idea that Lizzie later ridiculed. Abby was interviewed and stated that her gold watch and chain, ladies' chain, with slide and tassel attached, some other small trinkets of jewelry, and a red Russian leather pocketbook containing a lock of hair had been taken. She said, I prize that watch very much, and I wish and hope that you can get it, but I have a feeling that you never will. Her husband Andrew echoed her sentiments when he told Captain Desmond three times within two weeks after the robbery. I'm afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief. Perhaps it was obvious to Andrew and Abby that the burglary could have only been committed by someone within the heavily locked house and who knew just where to go to find the room where the Borden's valuables were kept. An intruder from the outside would need to know when the coast was clear as Emma, Lizzie, and, Br and Bridget were all home that day. He would have to find the rare time when the rear door wasn't hooked and the front door's three locks unhatched, unlatched. Enter, traverse the that confusing layout of rooms, get past more locked doors, break open a desk without alerting anyone to his presence, grab the good stuff, and exit, again without passing any of the inmates. Lizzie was ready with an answer to at least one of the obstacles. She dramatically showed the police officers an open door in the cellar and pointed out an old six or eight penny nail, which she found in the keyhole of a door leading to a bedroom on the east side of the house. The description of the door leading to a bedroom on the east side of the house. What? Okay. Matches the location of the door to Andrew and Abby's bedroom. It would appear the door was in the habit of being locked before the burglary of 1891, and a burglar used the unlikely nail as a tool of entrance. As you will see, Lizzie anchors her lies with objects, as though leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for others to, to detect her cleverness. No material object goes without a hint of her, of her deception. Attorney Knowlton during the inquest, the inquest questioning of Lizzie. All the reason you supposed the, there were sinkers there in the barn, which your father had told you there was lead in the barn? Lizzie, yes, lead, and one day I wanted some old nails. He said there was some in the barn. The streetcars were watched for several weeks after the burglary. Finally, a breakthrough occurred when the tickets were traced to some person. Oddly, Andrew told the police to drop the case. Not so oddly, it was later stated that Officer Desmond reported he had told Andrew that the stolen tickets had been traced to his youngest daughter after people using the horse car said the tickets had been given to them by Lizzie Borden. The stolen watch, so highly prized by Abby,
was quite probably the only the one Andrew bought bought her on August 5th, 1871. It was a gold HTG Lady Elgin in a hunting case and priced at $75. In 2015, $75 is the equivalent of $1,470. A, a prodigious amount for someone with Andrew's reticence for spending on things that weren't absolutely essential. That the gift did not fall on a birthday, anniversary, or another special occasion gives it even more importance. It was a gift from the heart, not from the obligatory observation of an event. Abby's watch, along with the other items, was never recovered. That Andrew suspected Lizzie was possibly the reason that from the day of the burglary forward, he laid the key to his bedroom in plain sight on the left-hand corner of the sitting room mantel. Without uttering a word, the key notified the thief that Andrew trusted the housemaid, and if stealing from your father is that important to you, then here. Here is the key. No rusty nail necessary. That key sat there, day in and day out, taunting Lizzie with her father's distrust, until the day he was found murdered, only a few feet from the mantel where it sat. The fireplace... Let's see, okay. The burglary of Abby's watch is significant. During trial testimony, Emma reported that Andrew wore on his little finger the only article of jewelry with which he adorned himself. He carried a pocket watch, but wore no other rings. The ring was a small gold band Lizzie had given to him 10 to 15 years before the murders. According to Emma, that would make Lizzie around 17 to 22 years old at the time. We know she did not graduate from high school, and the presentation of the, of the school rings was not yet of school rings was not yet popular. Was this the small gold ring that belonged to her late mother, Sarah? Was it Lizzie's way of reminding her father where his loyalty should lie? Or more ominously, was it her way of tying him to her, to her, due to her jealousy and hatred of Abby? Perhaps Abby's watch was the first outward sign of affection that the usually non-demonstrative and remote woman showed to his wife. For Lizzie, it was a sign of betrayal and abandonment no matter how erroneous her feelings were. The watch goes missing, but Lizzie's gift still glitters from her father's little finger. During Lizzie's inquest testimony, Attorney Knowlton asked her, Knowlton, were your father and mother hap happily united? Witness pauses a little before answering. Lizzie, why? I don't know. Okay, why I don't know, but that they were. Knowlton, why do you hesitate? Lizzie, because I don't know but that they were, and I am telling the truth as nearly as I know it. Lizzie's hesitation may have been caused by, by a flashback of Andrew's gift of the watch to Abby. It was obvious Lizzie had not really thought of her father and stepmother as a loving husband and wife, other than that unexpected romantic gesture on her father's part. That two things of obvious sentimental value to Abby were taken says quite a bit as to the perpetrator's mission. A small leather pocketbook with a lock of hair would hardly seem tempting. The hair was doubtless from someone Abby loved so dearly. Andrew's gift of a deed to the house on 4th Street in 1887 further cemented Lizzie's growing fear that this woman had not only taken over her mother's role, but maybe close to replacing his love for his daughters as well. It was at that time, it was at the time of the 4th Street transfer that Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother. When attorney Knowlton asked her during her inquest testimony, you did not regard her as your mother? 
Lizzie answered, not exactly, no. Though she came there when I was very young. Milton, were your relations toward her that of mother and daughter? Lizzie, in some ways it was, and in some it was not. Milton, in what ways was it? Lizzie, I decline to answer. The Borden House burglary in June of 1891 was the beginning of, of, of a plethora of strange happenings in 92nd Street. That winter, Lizzie began reporting seeing a strange man running around the house in the shadows. And we'll stop there because we're coming into Chapter 4. So uh, next week, same time, same place, 6.30 p.m. Let me uh, turn this bad boy off. There we go. Okay. There we go. So that's pretty cool. I was getting like tripped up on all the names, you know, when, when the, that whole list of names, we had a couple pages of names there. So I'll have to slow down and watch that. And I tend to read ahead when I'm reading too. So I got to slow down a little bit with that, but I hope you guys enjoyed the book. It's an interesting book as we start to get into uh, the psyche, not the psycho, but the, you know, the, the whole Lizzie Borden thing, you know, the, you know, what's reality, what's myth and all that. Um, Again, tomorrow is going to be in a, 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 a noon show with Barry, with uh, Barry Fitzgerald. So uh, be here. You know, don't be late. It's going to be a really cool show. And for the people that can't see the show, obviously, it will be on Facebook. It will be over at YouTube. So when you get off work or whatever, if you want to watch it, or even on the RSS feed, that'll you know uh, you, you can listen to it there as well. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming today. If you like this, share it with five people. If you hated it, share it with five of your enemies. <laughs> Equal opportunity, right? I say that every week. If you're li if you're li listening from YouTube or watching from YouTube, please subscribe. And again, um, I appreciate you guys coming. I appreciate you guys listening. If you know the ones that come every Sunday, the ones that watch our show every night, I appreciate it. I really do, uh, with all my heart. Let me get to my buttons here. And if you feel like you want to take a class or two, check out the. Uh, California Haunts Meetup. And if you feel like you want to help donate to keep the show on the air, that would be great too because we, you know, everything we do is pretty much non-profit so it all comes out of my pocket. You can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts or go to the Ven, uh, or just go to Venmo and type in California Haunts. You can do it from there. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming and I will see you tomorrow at noon. Bye. <laughs>